0: I'm Raul Guerrero and welcome by Dystoplicans to the Dystopian Republic. Our story for today begins on the dawn of June 20th, 1892. Two humble piers, a public house, Little Town Square, fish and chip shop and posh hotel formed Catalina Coast, a little scatter of small homes amassed in the interior of the beach town's limits. In one such house, Carlyle Valverde Jr. was filling his luggage with clothes and teaching materials, humming his eagerness to start his new teaching job. He was 16 days removed from earning his education degree at Northwest Coast College. Carlyle's stress meter was at a low it hadn't sat on since the night before his college career began. His six years of studying were one up. And down after another, pushing academic achievements, entire grade points outside of his reach. On multiple occasions, Carlyle had to withdraw and retake classes he was unlikely to pass the first time around. But over time, his academic prowess improved and he graduated in the middle of his class. On a social level, Carlyle was never able to fit in any of the crowds at his alma mater the ladies were indifferent to him and made the berths they gave him very wide. That didn't face Carlyle, as he didn't find a thing about them that was worth pursuing. When the time came for him to find a job, he applied for work at every school he could physically walk or ride to. His grade point average and lack of distinctions were repellent to every principal that interviewed him. But then, Carlyle applied for the job he's currently packing for and got it easily. Not caring about how good the truthfulness of the opportunity was, all that mattered to him was that his boss saw the potential in him that others did not. Carlyle rushed his packing to completion, jumped onto a horse taxi, and headed for the beach. At the square, the locals either ate breakfast, did errands, hung out at the fountain, or were working away. Hobbs, Boogle, the IV, Bird Jr., Walpole, and Hambleton were the latest four to enter that area, and they weren't at all happy about being there. Despite the day still being in its seventh hour, a lot had already happened to them. The four were screamed, shook, Pulled and thrown awake in the night's small hours. Their parents impetuously brushed their teeth, washed their faces, and got them dressed. They then tied the four up and stuffed them in taxis that took them deep in the wilderness. The taxis met in a dirt ground that had yet to be marked or touched by humanity. Its drivers, untied, the four left them on the soil and told them to find their way to town. Their actions were the oxygen that the fires in the kids' hearts needed to burn and spread. Those flames, the four felt, made them hunger for a reprisal that could put it out, leading them to a general store that looked like it was swimming in money. Behind the shop its manager was chewing on tobacco, relishing the wind, bird chirps, and bustling civility. He didn't foresee the kids approaching him with innocent faces, masking a bitterness that was desperately in search of conflict. Habsburgo asked the manager how he was doing on such a pretty morning. Wanting to be nice, he said that the day had gotten off the most magnificent start he'd seen in a long time. Burr was eager to know what the manager had in his little tin box, a curiosity the latter met with a pitch line about a Roxco being Brumelia's tastiest and purest chew. The manager met his ask for a piece with an absolute nay, saying that kids their age weren't old enough to appreciate or respect its properties. Habsburgo called his explanation stupid and untrue, as he and his friends have chewed on tobacco more than once, describing it as being like everything else they've tasted. The manager repeated his nay, but with a more stern and less pleasant tone. Using her beauty, touch, and smile, Walpole tried to charm him into giving her and the boys a taste of his nicotine-rich chews. The manager felt a bit of his supper last night shoot up to his mouth, nauseating him into pushing her hands off of him. He took a brass tomahawk and threatened to batter the four with it if they didn't skedaddle. Seeing that the manager wasn't playing anymore, They swallowed the offense Walpole took from his denial. Hambleton told him that he asked for it and that the next thing he and his friends would do was his fault. He held the manager at the gunpoint of an old rifle he found in the forest, scaring his target into putting his empty hand up. Hambleton threatened to blow his knees away if he didn't drop his tomahawk, and hand them the box of tobacco. The manager didn't hesitate in letting his light axe go and handing Hobbes Burgel his shoes, placing more importance on his aliveness. Hambleton directed him to turn and face the wall behind him, giving Burr and Walpole their chance to knock his lights out with their punches to the back of his neck and head. When the manager fell like a brick wall, the kids departed as quickly as they could, rushing to a hidden part of the beach to chew the tobacco they stole. That area was a sanded stretch in front of a woodland rising out of a scatter of ponds. It was much quieter and soothing than the public spot it was adjacent to. The kids sat before one of the ponds, sucking the chews in between, their cheeks, and lower gums. Habsburgo asked his friends if they had his back and were as willing to risk it all for him as vice versa, and one by one, Burr, Walpole, and Hambleton gave him and one another both of those assurances, making their walks to the pier a little bit easier. At that jetty, Carlyle waited for the little steam tug to arrive Watching teenagers play on the sand and high tide below, that sight gave him a sweet idea of the pupils he'll meet upon his first footstep on the school's grounds. Shortly after, Carlisle's ferry arrived and he took his seat, starting an 11-mile sail to Catalina Island, 700 acres beached, mountained forested and trailed the island that was named in honor of the woman who drafted the Brumelian Constitution. Victorianism fenced, built, and colored a two-story home that was magical in its gothicness. Its office was a meticulous exhibit of Eugenio Regalado Sr.'s explosive rise, non reign, and despicable fall as a politician. A hollow quiet drowned him in an aching ponder that made him madder and more lustful with each second the clock ticked. His wife Desiree stood at the doorway of the room she shared with him, commiserating over how humiliatingly he was run out of Brumelia City. She was with Eugenio as they rode by the pillorying crowd, seeing the havoc it wreaked his ego. But Desiree was glad that she and her husband were a year into their fresh start. She knew the island would be Eugenio's way out of a system that shunned him. In the black dormitory, their daughter Eugenia finished reading the first chapter of a four-volume memoir about a general from Ajaccio Corsica. She hid her book under her bed and went to check up on her brothers Eugenio Jr. and Barclay and Sister Cura. At the courtyard that linked the dorm with its white co-equal, Eugenio Jr. was deep into his gardening. Barclay was in the zone with his soccer playing, and Cura was hard at work painting an olive tree. Eugenia asked her siblings how they were doing in their efforts to keep themselves from succumbing to boredom. Speaking for herself and the brothers, Kira said that they were holding out, albeit with diminishing returns. Eugenia told her and the boys to get excited as the end of their seclusion could drop its anchor at any moment. In the ferry that had said chain attachment, Carlyle was surprised to see Hobbs, Burgo, Burr, Walpole, and Hambleton on board. He recalled the teens' surnames being those that belonged to Bromelian elites. Carlyle had seen them around and heard their names be said when their parents visited and spoke at the college. He was baffled that kids like them would be headed for his place of work, as his job was to be a teacher for a summer school meant to straighten delinquents up. All four of the kids came from long lines of fighters and survivors who did what needed to be done to form and preserve the nation their feet were on. And like those scratchers and clawers, those four had the scars and reputations to prove how close their falls were from those thorny trees. A hexagonal fountain sat on a small tall grass field in the islands south-southwest. It was what Eugenio Sr., and Desiree gazed into with pumping red hearts and a warmth softer than the cumulus clouds above. Based on the cradle of their romance, that fountain was a project they crafted with every ounce of reflection and dedication, being the one thing that was left of their glory days. As the day closed in on its twelfth hour, the Regalado kids, the ones from the ferry, and fifteen others four gathered at the main quad of the Catalina Island School, Eugenia looked closely at the faces around her and saw rough edges and toxic saliva. Eugenio Jr. didn't so much as grin kindly at them, let alone introduce himself. Barclay readied his brain and muscles for the fights through hell he expected to charge into, but Kira was confident that the kids she'll get to know will warm up to her once she pierces through their stone-hard exteriors. The Regalado kids were more than excited to meet people outside their immediate family, but that enthusiastic eagerness What's done away with once they saw what those new faces looked like? They beheld features that jogged their memories of the bullying they went through at the hands of the boys and girls who owned those attributes. In the lounge, Eugenio Senior couldn't thank Laverne Avalon and Carlyle enough for finding it in them to take what little he offered. Desiree understood that the jobs weren't exactly the most desirable but thanked her teachers for taking them anyway. She promised Carlyle and Laverne that she and Eugenio will make it worth their while, professionally and personally, as they approached the Quad, each of their ulterior motives for having the jobs that they did drew themselves out like maps from point A to B. With Desiree, Carlyle, and Laverne standing by him, Eugenio welcomed his kids and their peers to the school that will be their home for the summer. The claps and enthusiasm he received had the realness of pyrite buzzing like flies hungry for trash. Eugenio said that the coming season will see to it that the pigs society sent to be cleaned pay the debt they acquired from their delinquencies, prompting his wife and teachers to nod and mouth in agreement. The kids that rode in the ferry smiled smugly, their index fingers born ready to press their buttons the first chance they get. Eugenio stressed that this island getaway was in no way a vacation, and that neither he, his wife, or teachers were their mothers or fathers. He said that he had no patience for the unruly and disobedient, nor any problem punishing such people for rearing their undesirable heads. That shook the gulps Eugenia and Kira forced down but failed to disturb Eugenio Jr. or Barclay's mental wave lengths. Their father declared that the school will start with the kids planting seeds on a goodly clearing that was a garden until its time came. The groans every kid but his own gave him took his temper to the last nerve before its total loss. Habsburgo haughtily asked what Eugenio was going to do if he didn't want to, exciting Burr, Walpole, and Hambleton to join in his disdainful arrogance. That superiority was a far cry from the aghast their peers gasped out. Eugenio warned his defiers to recant their disrespect or their behinds will be his. Carlyle pleaded with the four to do what his boss said, enticing Desiree to restate her husband's intolerance for bad behavior, but neither comment dealt a single dent to their defiance. Habsburgo asked if Eugenio's threat was supposed to scare or make him laugh. Burr added that he's fought pricks who were bigger, stronger, and scarier. Walpole expressed how nothing he says will bend her knee as she's heard every threat in the book, and in no uncertain terms, Hambleton stated his refusal to follow the rules of a scum who lied, cheated, and stole his way to the top. What he said put Eugenio on a path that made war look serene in comparison, sobering the other kids faster than a bullet hitting its target. Hambleton and his friends were commanded to come with him and Laverne to their punishment. Their defiance still alive but trembling, the four dared him to make them come with him and her. Eugenio said that they've got until the count of three or they'll be shown a hell so horrid and agonizing that it'll mash their very beings to goulash. That particular threat hit the four's minds at a velocity equal to a stake through a vampire's heart. It was a four-pronged flyswatter to the flight of their open resistance. Eugenio's boys showed no pity to the four's shivering, whereas his girls hid their worryments in stares that widened its eyes and trembled their frowns. He instructed Desiree and Carlyle to watch over the students for him and Laverne as they deal with the four troublemakers. The compliant nods Eugenio got were followed by the four being led away and the other kids walking to the clearing. That space's ease on the eyes dulled the edges the kids were on as they got to work. It was as clear as day that Eugenio's snap at the four startled their nerves into a spell as unsteady as the staggers that shook said quartet as they left. Even his sons weren't spared of that liability to shake, failing to not let the force fear touch their nerve fibers. That said, the discipline that had the Regolado kids stool scared was no more stern than what very strict parents would dish out. Their parents dedicated their home lives to demanding respect and based their love on a system that was generous with its rewards and merciless with its penalties. Although Eugenio and Desiree never crossed the line with that system, its more corporal elements crumpled their kids' nerves into bundles. Twenty seven seats in, darts of curiosity hit the bull's eyes of Eugenia and Cura's amygdalae. In the time the girls have been on the island, they've caught on to a couple oddities. On several occasions, Eugenio told them, their brothers and mother, not to venture into the abandoned garrison if they valued their relationship with God. His wife and kids didn't know what that former base looked like nor had any clue what lurked there. A second thing Eugenia and Cura found odd was the long night's Eugenio would have. The faint, blunt noises he'd cause woke them up in the middle of the night and kept them in that state all the way to sunrise. That resulted in the sisters' bouts with falling asleep on their tasks, which would have set their parents' tempers on fire. Those oddities got Eugenia and Kira wondering if they were related. In the islands interior southeast, Eugenio got Habsburgo and Burr moving, while Laverne had Walpole and Hamilton's walks in her hands. The further their walks got, the quieter, darker, and more densely forested their surroundings became. Habsburgo saw the level he and his friends were at get more and more below that of the sea. What he saw walked Walpole down a lane that was tiled with pain and had its ground broken by suffering. The urge Burr felt to make himself scarce ballooned to a weight too heavy for his impulse to hold. Hambleton discerned that his want to flee was a desire his friends also had, especially when the garrison became visible. Its camouflage, in damp brush, medieval build, splintery outer boundaries, and hideous hues, stared at the fore like a ghost out for spirits. They broke free of Eugenio and Laverne's holds and punched their laughing gears in. Tasting blood and feeling freed teeth, the recipients of those strikes were utterly livid. Before the boys could run into the brush and trees, Eugenio and Laverne bludgeoned them unconscious with long, blunt billy clubs. When they saw Walpole's sprinting and distraught look back she gave chase as he dragged the boys inside like meat hunks. Their lone escapee channeled her fraughtness in the full pelt she ran at, drawing a line under re an ordeal that crippled her young spirit. Walpole ran down narrow passages, fought through vegetation, and dealt with rising and falling grounds. Her every glance back showed Laverne hard on her heels with no end to her stamina in sight. Walpole's will to save herself considerably increased her distance from her pursuer. With Laverne all but out of sight, the salvation she was looking for revealed itself, but it was away off from a waterfall four and a half times her five foot seven height. Walpole was unwilling and hesitant to make the jump, given the high risk for drowning. Her reluctance shrank to nothing when she heard Laverne coming her way. It was Walpole's nudge that her only means of escape was making that leap. Laverne cornered her at the waterfall's edge, saying that there was nowhere for her to run or hide, and that she may as well face her discipline while that ship was still in dock. The agonies lurking in that sentence and chance of making it to salvation got Walpole to make the risky jump down the waterfall. She fell on all fours into a pool as deep as the jump she just took, plunging toward the bottom like a boulder. Walpole struggled to get her body out of its stiff fall, the floor drawing closer with each passing millisecond. Her brief prayer for God to give her strength allowed her to angelically swim toward the surface. Walpole popped her head, arms, and chest above the water, looking up at where she jumped and finding that Laverne wasn't anywhere nearby. The pressure that swelled her nerves blew out all its steam, feeling her brain dance its high spirits, Walpole beatifically made her way ashore and climbed to her saunter for the salvation its white light took her over to it like a master moving its puppets every move walpole was consternated that hobsburgoe burr and hambleton were taken prisoner again but she could at least find comfort in knowing that their fates won't be hers she walked into the light and the next sight she beheld would strike an awe into her mind. Pebbles sprinkled the sand of the shore her feet were on, being veiled over and exposed repeatedly by the ocean tides. The beach's lively, bold hues were a day different from the de facto nighttime that would have been her second choky. Walpole fought back to the story of a Scottish sailor who survived being a castaway for four years that reading became her study for staying alive and free in her lonesome. Meanwhile, two hours of work without let had turned the clearing into a field of planted seeds as expansive as the space would allow. The kids gave Desiree and Carlyle looks that demanded to know if they were now happy. Their chaperones were impressed by the job they did, imagining a garden that could outdo the one it succeeded, Carlyle instructed the kids to clean up their work area and put away the equipment. Their unconditional compliance gave him and Desiree a chance to talk a little, watching the kids clean up and put away. Carlyle expressed how glad he was to have Eugenio as his boss, a man who could scare the discipline into the students. Effortlessly, Desiree grinned and replied that delinquents only know two things, control and fear. She elaborated that seeds of a bad nature want to control others the same way machinists operate their machinery, forcing them to perform every desired action. Desiree added that the only recourse those pips knew how to implement was one of a rebel taking hostages in pursuit of control over a village, relying on their scariness to submit their captives. Carlyle asked her for examples of those lines of thinking at work, a request she served him in the ear-whispering form of her sons and daughters. In the interest of protecting their privacy, all Desiree was willing to say was that it wasn't too long ago that her children were a notch above before her husband and Laverne took away. She prevented Carlyle from asking any more questions by praising the kids for cleaning after themselves and conceiving the garden like a team. The thanks that came Desiree's way were strained and irritated, like the ones from when the class first met. Ignoring that, Carlyle decided to reward the kids' hard work with a night of leisure and relaxation, having proven themselves worthy of such an evening. That didn't make his students resent him any less, steadfast in their feeling that he was no ally of theirs. Still, Carlyle was hopeful that the kids would come to admire him in due time. Eugenio Sr. and Laverne returned with a deer they shot dead, decapitated, skinned, and gutted, hence the blood on their clothes and flies buzzing nearby. Surprisingly, the kids weren't grossed out or affrighted, and were ravenous and fatigued, if anything. Carlyle asked his boss and equal where Burgo, Burr, Walpole, and Hambleton were. Eugenio answered that those four were safe and sound, serving their time outs in their dorm rooms and having porridge for supper. Laverne added that she and he talked to them in the sternest ways possible advising them to get with the program if they wanted their summer to be the fruitful experience it ought to be. Desiree replied that there were times in which the sword of discipline must be drawn to preserve the shield of order. The disrespect the force spat out being one such occasion, the setting sun was her husband's cue to lead the way to the roofed outdoor amphitheater a hike nobody found suspicious or worrisome in any way. On a bonfire built into the theater center stage, venison cuts hung above the flames on a skewer ring held by four poles. From neck to shank, the pieces dished out were to everyone's liking, bringing quietude to an otherwise stressful day. Their flesh and juice placed every person's mind on the starting line of a journey where its finish was a lifelong goodwill, the middle of which only Eugenio Sr. and Laverne knew about. And speaking of whom, they were the first two to finish their venison, using that fact as a pretense to excuse themselves to the latrines. When Eugenio and Laverne came back, she told everybody To stop what they were doing because he'd like to say a few words. Eugenio thanked his students for giving his wife and Carlisle the respect they deserve, describing it as an excellent place for them to start their reformation process. Spots of loose leaves covered the grounds in the feuders' vicinity like polka dots. Eugenio acknowledged that their first day together didn't have the best start, adding, that it prevented the kids from getting to know him from the outset. As he was saying that, the spots spasmed and snarled like there were moles living in them. Eugenio conceded that it was his fault for not doing enough to assert his authority from minute one, talking parallel to the spots' two-inch rises from the dirt. He gave his word that his power will be beyond question moving forward and that his next action will make good on that promise. Eugenio's snap of his fingers bursted an entire unit of rugged, rustic men and women out of the now former spots. His unit collectively aimed their rifles at his family, students, and Carlisle, knowing only to shoot, to maim, or kill on his or Laverne's command in that order that got said targets to scream and or look on in disbelieving shock, partly explaining the oddities Eugenia and Cura took note of. It upsetted Carlisle and Desiree into sharing in the betrayal that ill-treated the Regalado kids and made their peers feel as though their distrust of the summer school was proven right. From the heart Eugenio apologized for putting his family, students, and Carlyle in such a lethally precarious position. The targets of his guns all saw through his apology, seeing the artificiality of its somberness. Laverne's licks of her pleasure onto her lips made such a sentiment all the more justified. Carlyle demanded that Eugenio disclose what happened to the four he and Laverne took away. His boss told him not to think the worse, as those kids were neither dead nor anywhere close to its door, but gladly admitted that they were in his clutches. In a darkness, kept out of its pitch point by a lone candle, Hopsburgo Burr, and Hambleton, and Walpole sat in its windowlessness, long, dead hay, and black-painted stone, shackles bounding them by their wrists, ankles, waistlines, and necks. Hours earlier, she was in the happiest place she stepped foot on in quite a while, the same elation that overwhelmed her after her first escape from Eugenio's confines. Walpole was in search of a well-hidden hole to set up camp in when she noticed all the leaf piles scattered around the sand. Her fast walk down the shore was halted by several more of Eugenio's lackeys popping out of those very leaves, pointing their rifles at her as if she was a deer. That halt broke Walpole's heart like a bust hitting stone at the speed of a dropping pin. She was sincere in her belief that she could survive and escape undetected. Shortly thereafter Laverne had the lackeys make way for her so that she could feel Walpole's despondency. She told her that she should have taken the discipline when she had the chance, saying that what would have been brief was now going to be much longer and more grueling than she could ever imagine. Laverne got that change under way by having her lackeys rifle whip Walpole into a fetal self-cradle that was bruised up, bloodstained, and pink with tears. It underlined the hope that was in Walpole no longer, glooming her into accepting the coming hours. She screamed her neigh as Laverne had the lackeys lift her up. Made to look dead at her malice-filled face, a horrified Walpole tried, but couldn't break free. She screamed and cried all throughout her walk, into the cell she and her friends now shared. Too despondent to see Habsburgo's poignancy, Burr's stoicness, and Hambleton's ire. All four of them presumed that the others were, or would soon fare every bit as poorly. But something in those four said that there was far more to the school and Eugenio than the iron fists both possessed. Anyhow, Eugenio told his targets that there was no value in trying to rescue the four as they were in a place that was of the island, in existence only. He made it clear that his aim was for his students to leave his school as obedient as his lackeys, but also with his intelligence and awareness of the world. Eugenio added that whether his targets wanted to or not, they will do, experience, and learn things that'll show them the reality that tore him apart. His desire was to prepare them for a world much different than the rosy mask it wore. Eugenio was ashamed that he did not see the ugliness under its veal until after he lost everything. He intended to do whatever it took to make sure his students didn't end up in his shoes, and they were hell-bent on resisting him at every turn, although their resolve to pull through on that refusal varied by person. And as fate would have it, the days that followed would prove to have dismal effects on Bromelia's history. And that was the Catalina Island School. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day. To listen to the story I just gave. Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com slash podcasts the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at raulguerrerojr95 at gmail.com And lastly... Support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypalme slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero, and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of The Dystopian Republic.